Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Let's take a quick break. You know what's one of my favorite things to do post-dancing rehearsal? Not going to lie, it's putting on some sweatpants immediately and having a drink. You all know I love a glass of wine or two, but I also like to switch it up. So lately, Jason and I have been making a little cocktail at night using Rum Haven. Rum Haven believes Mother Nature did things right, so it's crafted using real coconut water and not using artificial preservatives or flavorings. It is so incredibly refreshing. I mentioned I like to add it to a cocktail, but it's also actually great over ice with a splash of club soda. It tastes like I'm on vacation, sitting on an island somewhere far, far away which is without a doubt a great feeling, especially during these crazy times. So make sure to follow at Rum Haven on Instagram because they post all types of these seasonal recipes. They do giveaways and tips. Plus, when you go to discover.rumhaven.com, you can find their latest blogs, quizzes, and any promotions they have going on. On one of their latest blog posts, they actually have some tips about planning your virtual watch party, which is pretty perfect since everyone's favorite reality shows back on Tuesdays. Be sure to have a little virtual drink with me, sip some Rum Haven, maybe even while you're listening to the pod. Let me know what you think. Today's specials, new Chase Freedom Flex with 3% on dining, including takeout. Now every meal comes with a side of cash back. Learn more at chasefreedom.com. Cars are issued by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A., member FDIC. Restrictions and limitations apply. Offer subject to change. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Deep Cut with John Roca. That's who you're listening to right now, John Roca, here on the Collider Conversations feed. I want to thank you all so much for sending in the incredible uh, kind words, compliments uh, that you've done to support the show over the last five months. It's been great, and the show keeps expanding. More and more people, uh, we get to have more and more incredible guests coming on the show, and today is no different. Uh, the gentleman who is joining me today, he is the writer and director of this new film from Amazon Studios called The Report. Um, it's something that's going to challenge you uh, a lot and challenge your ideas about the government and maybe challenge uh, you in ways that you didn't want to be challenged, but you need to be challenged, not only as uh, Americans, but as human beings as well. He's previously written The Informant and Contagion. So uh, you know you're in for, a, I think, a, an incredible discussion. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the pod, Scott Z. Burns. How are you, Scott? Great, John. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me at your wonderful home. This is incredible. Yeah, I like it. It's very expansive and you got a great view, so it's very peaceful. Thank you. Maybe we'll meditate afterwards. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to start off in talking about this movie because I've seen it twice now. Um, and uh, it is a very addictive movie for people who are political junkies. And for people like me who served eight years in the military uh, and um, you know was involved in the early years in the 90s with some of the uh, uh, military intelligence stuff that was going on um, overseas, uh, this is such a fascinating story of Daniel J. Jones and the Senate, Senate Intelligence Committee as they investigate the CIA's use of torture following the September 11th attacks. And this is a real, just a true story. And this, it covers the more than a decade's worth of, uh, uh political intrigue and then, uh, culminates in the 6,700 page report. 
I want to ask you, Scott, you do a lot of fact-based films or projects or uh, projects that feel like they could be fact-based and happen in our world, like Contagion. What drew you to this particular project? Uh, had you heard the story before, or what was the uh, inciting incident, I should say? You know, I had some awareness of this as a bit of a news junkie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when stories started coming out that the CIA had renditioned people to black sites, right. um, it, it definitely piqued my interest. Um, then there was a piece that I came across in Vanity Fair about these two psychologists who are sort of the self-described architects of the program, yeah. and that was followed on by an article that Jane Mayer wrote in The New Yorker where she you know, reveals Jim Mitchell as being one of the psychologists. So initially I was interested in figuring out how these two psychologists who were contractors were able to sell the CIA on the idea of coercive measures um, as a way of getting truth. Um, You know, I I just had a hard time with the idea that you could beat the truth out of somebody when that person might not even know the truth. So how do you know if it's working when you don't really know what someone has in their head to begin with? Yeah. So there's, there's a problem there that I think was sort of evident to me. And as, I began my research into that. Um, the report that Daniel Jones wrote came out, so that was in December of 2014. And I saw, oh, so you had jumped in already with yeah. this story in your mind and exploring yeah. this more and more before the report even came out. Yes, fascinating. Okay. And I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have an awareness of Daniel um, when the report came out. I read it and and I very quickly, you know, reached out to Senator Feinstein's office and said, I'm a, a citizen of California, and is there any way I could speak to the lead investigator? And eventually I was able to get Daniel on the phone because it was his job to talk to members of the press about the report. Mm. And eventually uh, he left the committee, and we found ourselves in New York at the same time, and we sat down and we had a drink, and I asked him about his experience writing the report, sort of writer to writer. Mm. And when he told me about what when he what he went through personally in trying to get the story out, I, you know, decided I wanted to write a movie about a guy trying to tell a story to a bunch of people who are reluctant to hear it. Yeah, and. You know, there's so many of these films that have come out, Rendition and uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which you allude to in the movie. Um, what Were you afraid walking into this minefield a little bit, or do you have that kind of, like, feeling of, like, I'm going to find it out? Are you an investigator in your own way as you go into a project like this? Well, I guess what I, f- you know, I think my job as a storyteller, first and foremost, is to to entertain. Yeah. And Steven Soderbergh... I've worked with for almost 20 years. Um, he and I have always talked about trying to Trojan horse um, stories t- to get across ideas in ways where we're not clobbering people over the head with them. Right. And so to me, I, I just went in trying to understand what the story was. I, did, I didn't really have a particular axe to grind. Mm-hmm. And when I met Daniel, it was more the sort of Kafkaesque notion, you know, yeah. you know, aspect of his journey that that made me want to write about him um, because he struck me as a character like a Frank Serpico, an Aaron Brockovich, a Karen Silkwood, a person who you know rises up from the middle of a system to you know call it to account. Yeah, Snowden is alluded to in the movie, but this is not the same thing. You know, you have yeah. a you have a line later on where Feinstein confronts him about it and says, how do you feel about Edward Snowden? But this is different. This is a gentleman who's handed a job. He was trying to get into uh, another area uh, when he first came out of college or, or uh, uh, graduate school, and he ends up kind of being filtered into this other area, and in that area discovers all this stuff that's happening. And like any good American wants to raise questions about what we've been doing. And, you know, it's an interesting film in the fact that you present both sides of it. We, and there are, there are villains in a way and there are heroes in a way. But no one is 100% clean in this movie. And you come out of it feeling like, well, uh, you know, 
people are doing people are doing these things because they think they're protecting the country or they have biases that they yeah. want to pursue. And I think you do an effective job of well, conveying great. that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, look, I mean, I think one of the struggles we're having in this moment in 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 our country's politics is yeah. that we you know, and I think the media is is certainly a participant and an enabler in this regard, but we want to get into this very binary view of our leaders that they're all good or they're all bad. Right. And, you know, I think that people who go into public service by and large, um, go in for, for, for really good reasons. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm grateful to you for your service in the military. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, you know, and I'm sure you went in there wanting to protect the country. Sure. Um, and, and I think it's sad that we are now in a time where, you know, saying that is almost embarrassing to mm. some people. Um, and it, it shouldn't be, you know, I, I had occasion the other night to, to talk to Norman Lear about the movie and, mm-hmm. and Norman, oh. you know, Norman served in the second world war. Right. And what he would say is that, you know, on, on the heels of, of Pearl Harbor, you know, Norman wanted to go and fight because he believed in the Bill of Rights and he believed in the Constitution and he believed in these beautiful ideas that, you know, are getting diluted, you know, every day now. And I think Daniel Jones felt the same way after September 11th. He wanted to go and and do something to protect this country. And for him, that was going into counterintelligence and eventually that led him to the Senate. Um, but what I, what I was re- really trying to do in the movie is, you know, have the discourse not be about right and left about have it right. be about right and wrong. And, and I think one of the, the beautiful moments for me is, you know, the thing that sent Dan on his journey was the Senate intelligence committee voted 14 to one yeah. to, to have Dan go and pursue this, which is about as bipartisan a mandate as yeah. one can possibly imagine. And I, th- I hope when the audience sees it, they remember that it wasn't that long ago. We're talking like, you know, 10 years ago yeah. where we were still able to have that. Well, you ha- and it's really funny when you say that 10 years ago, but it feels like it's happening all over again now with yeah. a lot of the uh, what we sense are cover-ups here and going on and people wanting to uh, denigrate other people or immediately claim that they're biased because they're bringing up these legitimate concerns um, about abusive power. Um, and it was funny, I was, as I was watching the film again this morning, I found myself just even more uh, uh, blown away by how topical and how much we keep repeating these things and these these same uh, uh, patterns over and over again, almost no matter what administration. And yeah. you wonder, um, we have an idealistic point of view of the world, but are we fooling ourselves in the long run? I don't know. Well, uh, look, we, we're we living definitely through a, a moment where we have a crisis of accountability hmm. and where, you know, the executive branch um, seems to want, to not respect Congress, right. and and that's a real problem. I mean, <laughs> you know, it is the very definition of a constitutional crisis. I mean, the Senate Intelligence Committee exists to provide oversight to yeah. the CIA, and yet the CIA felt comfortable misleading them um, about this program. And I think one of the problems that exists, and it, it you know, I'm sure it started before the Bush administration, mm. um, and you can probably just keep going back. <laughs> sure. Um, but we have a crisis of accountability that certainly ran through the Bush-Cheney years yeah. when this program happened. Um, and and I think, you know, the lion's share of the blame for what happened certainly has to lay at the feet of the CIA mm. under the leadership of, of Bush and Cheney. But then you move into the Obama administration and and the banks weren't held accountable. Yeah. Um, And the CIA was not held accountable. Yeah. Um, And when you've created this culture that lets people get away with shit, 
it's hard for it to stop. Yeah. And in, in, instead, I guess I feel like it's one of these things where if someone sees someone get away with one thing, then they go one step further. Right. I can get away with two things. Exactly. And, and I three, think yeah. that's, you know, we look at history, I think, as these discrete moments, but they're all the knock-on effect mm-hmm. of the preceding moment. And so I think the reason why people find resonance with what's happening today in our film is because it does look familiar. It mm-hmm. does look once again like Congress is struggling to provide oversight yeah. against the executive branch and the executive branch largely based on this theory of the unitary executive, mm-hmm. which John Yu, you know, wrote about when justifying what the CIA did in the enhanced interrogation program right. is really something that Attorney General Barr is trumpeting now. Yep. You, yeah, it's a very good point. Coming back to the uh, movie even more powerfully, uh, what discovery surprised you as you were doing research for the project? What's one that like really kind of made you stop and take your glasses off and take a moment? You know, I think the most surprising thing when I was doing my research was when I started speaking to people mm-hmm. in the military and in law enforcement about what interrogation techniques work. Mm. And Ali Soufan, who is an FBI agent who is portrayed in the film, who's, you know, a really brilliant interrogator, um, who spoke Arabic, who loves America, who is a remarkable public servant and a hero in my book. You know, when I spoke to Ali, I remember he took great umbrage at me saying, so what works? (laughs) And he said, only one thing works. Yeah. Rapport building. You need to sit down with these guys and get to know them mm. and make it clear to them that, you know, their life as they knew it was over. Yeah. And that, you know, you can, I can help you if you help me. Right. And, and start there. Start by building a bridge um, and, and gain their trust and gain information. And it wasn't just Ollie who did that. Yeah. It was the military intelligence people as well and at one point i found myself having a conversation with a navy seal who said you know because of what the cia did if i get captured my instructions are to pull a card out of my wallet that has the geneva convention on it and say you know i'm an american serviceman these are my rights you know well how can anybody in the military take that card out of their wallet now because of what the CIA did and expect to have, you know, fair treatment. Mm -hmm. And that to me was stunning because I think like a lot of people, you know, and and when we've shown the the film to people, there's almost a reluctance um, on on the part of some people, particularly on the left to go, well, okay, but you know, is it, you know, don't these things, they don't work. Yeah. They don't work. And good intelligence gatherers don't use them. And they, and so that's, that was a big revelation to me that, you know, the military were the real victims here, our military. Right. Because you thought, oh, they'd be gung ho in doing this. But in fact, the people who are actually on the ground seeing it know what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, and yeah. as I'm sure you know, the you know the the Army's Code of Conduct forbids this. Yep. And it goes all the way back to George Washington. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, there are certainly examples in American history where law enforcement um, uh, has used, you know, brutal tactics sure. against certain groups. The other thing that is very striking to me when you begin to think about it is... You know, if the people who had hijacked those planes had been white Europeans, would we have done any of this? You know, yeah. sorry. <coughs> yes, a very good point. I apologize. Water went down the round shoot there. Uh, yeah, it's a very good point. And you have Tim Blake Nelson say that specifically in a scene with Maura Tierney, who some people have speculated is um, uh, Gina. 
I forget her last name. The CIA director now, Gina Gina Haspel. Is, do you, is, was Bernadette supposed to be Gina Haspel? Is she standing in for Gina Haspel? She, she is a composite character. <laughs> and and it's a good not, answer, Scott. And it's not. It's not as you know. I'm not trying to hide from. No, you're not anything. as nefarious. Yeah. There were a lot of women who worked in Alex Station, which was the Bin Laden unit, yeah. and there were a lot of female analysts um, at the counterterrorism, you know, thing over the the entire program and so it would have been economically unfeasible and dramatically really confusing to every time right. see a new person and so you know more tyranny such an amazing actress yeah. that i was i wanted to give her as much as i could so she represents a lot mm-hmm. of you know a lot of the people who worked in ctc you know Gina Haspel is name-checked in the yes. movie and for something which, you know, there is open-source reporting on, which is she played a major role in the destruction of the tapes. Mm. And, she, you know, that happened even after the Bush White House said, don't destroy the tapes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Harriet Myers, who was George Bush's lawyer, said to the CIA, do not destroy the tapes. You know what happens in America when when that happens yeah, yeah um and one wonders about you know the tapes that exist right now yeah this, that's that server everybody yeah. wants access to that server I, I we might be incredibly surprised we might find um you mentioned uh, uh a little bit of dramatic license that you take uh, are there other uh, areas where you had to rearrange events for dramatic purposes or did you try to keep chronologically uh you adhere to it chronologically as much as possible yeah, chronologically, I think we we did a pretty good job mm-hmm. of towing the line of reality. Um, you know, Michael C. Hall's character is also someone who represents an endless number of lawyers yeah. who you know worked at the CIA during the program. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also an example of a character that that is a, a, a lot of people mm-hmm. you know compressed together. Um, we tried whenever we could with the program to pull language directly from the report. And so if you go online and you can still go online and find the report, you will find big sections of our movie are are really pulled directly from the pages of of the report. The original report, the 6,700 page report or the 400, the 500 page executive summary, um, you know, the, the 6,700 page tome that Dan, um, created is you know still classified, so I did not have access to that. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the the tragedies for this of the story is if the if the movie went on for another hour, right, right, right. and I wouldn't do that to anybody. But <laughs> if it did, you know, once the Republicans were put back in charge of the committee, Richard Burr, who became chairman, mm-hmm. um, immediately asked the executive branch to return all of the copies of the report. Um, so there was an wow. effort to, you know, to destroy and bury the report right. even after it came out. I find this fascinating to me, the, this fear of questioning the institution, that, like that somehow it'll Im- explode or implode. Um, and it's, I find it to be ridiculous. We've survived so many other things in the history of our country, but this idea that if a particular brand of, I would say, cowboys gets exposed for yeah. com- going off... Uh, on their own to do something that they shouldn't have done that somehow, you know, it'll just destroy the the faith in the institution. If anything, clearing, cleaning it up and getting people out is what restores the faith in the institution, not hiding and burying stuff. It's an interesting concept that I've never understood. Well, I'm happy to vote for you. Um, (laughs) Maybe someday. (laughs) Because that is exactly, you know, Dan Jones told me a great story at one point, and it's it's in the movie where there was an argument advanced, you know, um, against the report, which was if we put this out, we might lose them. Yeah, and, which is said in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Dan's reaction to that was, you know, what does that what does that even mean? <laughs> you're going to lose them. They're not going to. You know, they're just going to quit and not come to work. Right. And go, yeah. Sorry if you're not going to let us torture people. Yeah. We're, we're done, we're out. I mean, every day people hate on the IRS. Oh, yeah. The IRS, like, no one says, oh, geez, like, we better be nice to the IRS or we're going to lose them. Right, right. So this notion that, you know, we were going to lose the intelligence committee or community, 
um, by not holding them to account for their actions um, is really strange to me. Really <laughs> yeah. strange. Yeah. Um, you, you, as a producer, I have to ask you now, um, uh, how, and director here, how did you get this incredible cast? I mean, Adam Driver, Annette Benning, uh, Corey Stoll, uh, who else am I missing here? Uh, Maura Tierney, as we mentioned earlier, Tim Blake Nelson, Michael C. Hall, John Hamm, Linda Powell, who's incredible, yeah. uh, Ted Levine. This is such a fantastic cast of really powerful actors. Um, how were you able to get them all together? Uh you know, it was truly a coalition of the willing, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of a coalition of the New York base. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, it started with Annette and Adam, um, and those were two people who I didn't have previous relationships with. Oh. Um, Steven Soderbergh did know Adam from Logan Lucky, mm -hmm. and, and Steven had suggested that I send the script to Adam. Um, and I did, and Adam and I had dinner, and he is a former Marine. Yes, I was going to ask you about that, yeah. And he certainly, I think, was, you know, what he said to me was, this is a story that I feel like I should know from, you know, what I've done with my life, and yet there's so much in here I didn't know, mm -hmm. and I think that, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times those are the best stories to tell. I think it's great to hear a story you didn't know, but it's also really interesting to hear a story that you thought you knew yeah. and it wasn't what you thought. Um, and that, you know, that was exciting to Adam. Also, you know, even though Dianne Feinstein is a public figure, mm -hmm. the fact that Daniel Jones is someone buried in the middle of the bureaucracy was interesting to Adam. Yeah. Um, that he would get to play someone who was obsessed and, and rigorous and dedicated mm. um, and sort of singular in his focus, which I think probably resonates for him as an actor. I think yeah. that's a lot of the way that he does, um, you know, his own preparation. Yeah. So, but after that, you know, I worked with A.B. Kaufman, who uh, is an amazing casting director in New York, and mm. A.B. was very taken with the script. Um and she, you know, really helped. You know, we, mm -hmm. we found videotape of, or, uh, you know, YouTube clips of all of these people because a lot of them are real people. Right, right. And, you know, when, you know, you know, in the case of Ted Levine, there's just enough of John Brennan oh, man. and Ted Levine. Yeah. That's a great performance, yeah. by the way, for and, Brennan. And it was extraordinary because, you know, actors are willing to show up for, mm. you know, two days and just play a part. And, you know, it was a very gratifying experience for me. I mean, some of these people were friends of mine who I'd met along the way, like Matthew Reese, and right. Jennifer mm -hmm. Morrison. Um, Tim Blake Nelson is someone who had helped me with readings of a play that I did in New York. Okay. Um, so some of it were old favors, Call, <laughs> you're calling in, calling in. Um, but a lot of it was really you know av helping me build this cast and and i think the the great surprise for me and, and the really gratifying moment of all of this was realizing there are that many talented people in the community who want to help tell stories like this yeah right because we get caught up in the whole blockbuster superhero yeah. franchise stuff and of course adam driver being in the star wars franchise but still it's great that these kinds of films can still exist and do their thing as well which i find uh thrilling as a cinephile because these kinds of films still need to exist still need to be out there yeah. uh you you worked with amazon studios on this and you work with vice studios what was that relationship like with both of them well the way that the whole thing kind of unraveled was that I had initially taken this project to HBO and we were, in we were in development there for, you know, the first year or two of our existence, mm -hmm. um, maybe even longer. And then, uh, you know, one day I got a phone call from Len Amato at HBO who had been very supportive um, and said, I'm sorry, but I don't think we're going to be able to make this movie in the time frame that you're thinking. Oh. And I don't want to promise you something that I can't deliver because we don't know what's going to look like 
after the AT&T acquisition. Right. So I'll do everything I can to help you get it out of here. Um, go quickly and, uh, (laughs) you know, we'll do what we can. And he actually said, and I want to help you find another home for this, which Mm. is extraordinary. Like that doesn't happen in Hollywood. Right. Um, and we went out to the town and pretty much everybody passed and we were trying to cobble together financing. When we were at HBO, we were an $18 million movie with a 48 day schedule. Wow. Um, we wound up being an $8 million movie with a 26 day schedule, um, which was pretty brutal. But the, you know, the way that this happened was I was friends with somebody at, at vice, a guy named Eddie Moretti. Mm -hmm. And I was out to dinner with Eddie one night and he could tell how depressed I was about (laughs) the state of, of the, you know, the world and he said can i read your script and i gave it to him and he called me the next morning and said we have to we have to make this yeah and vice was willing to put in some of the money um and eddie was you know uh, you know pretty high up there but it wasn't going to be enough and then he did an incredibly brave thing which allowed the movie to be made which is he left vice to start his own production company oh wow and was able to get a line of credit and, you know, and get us from where Vice was to where we needed to be. So that happened around the same time. Yeah. Him leaving and everything, because uh, I, I know a couple of people who've uh, worked at Vice and through our owner, right. Mark Fernandez, over at Collider. So that, it's fascinating that it was around the same time. Yeah. No, they, they saved us. Yeah. And, I mean, that all was happening when we were 10, 12 weeks out from production. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, you know, it was terrifying to Jennifer Fox, my producer and I, would, I remember getting in a scout van going, I feel really sketchy getting in this van with these people when I know we don't have money. And right. she said, you just got to keep going and believe that we're going to pull this together. It's funny, no matter how far you progress, sometimes a film will drag you back to that old guerrilla-style filmmaking yeah. or college filmmaking, and you're like, well, this is why I learned this at this age, you know? How did you, did you, were you always going to direct, or was there another, were you thinking of only just writing the script? Was this, it- well, what happened was, there was a movie I wrote um, called Side Effects. Yeah, that good film. Thanks, mm-hmm. that I did with Steven Soderbergh, and... I was going to direct that and I was having the same struggle that I think everybody else has where it was a psychological thriller and every time we got close to getting a cast, we would lose our financing. When we had financing, the actors we wanted weren't available and Stephen, you know, read the script and really loved it and said, I want to do this. And I said, but you know, this was, this was something I wrote for me. (laughs) And he, uh, <laughs> and he said... He big-timed you, man. <laughs> he kind of did, but, you know, I guess I feel like my obligation as a writer is, you know, and, and I think any screenwriter in town would say this, you know, if Steven Soderbergh says he wants to make your movie, you get your, you know, you get your movie made. Yeah, true. And that's the name of the game. Yeah. And he said to me, you know, I want you to go and write something for yourself when you're done with this. Um, and you know, you've worked really hard and Mm -hmm. you deserve, you know, a turn at bat. Um, so this was always something I planned on doing myself and, and he was very, very supportive of it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I did what I did then. And Mm -hmm. I'm happy that this was, was an opportunity that I, I I got to take advantage of. I think you do an incredible job directing the film. Honestly, the the camera angles, the shots, the, um, the way you set up the, the frame and the, uh, the colors of the rooms, you know, the lighting in there to convey certain moods and feelings, all that really come through as the film is progressing, as this speeding train starts pick, as this train starts picking up speed and then starts to go off the rails even more near the end, you're capturing all of that um and i never found myself being taken out of the film by anything you did as a director and i think that speaks volumes so maybe the the side effect situation was had to happen so that you you know you'd be in this position well you know one of the great things that happened as a result of you know my collaboration with steven is that i got to spend probably 200 days on set wow yeah standing next to him and steven 
you know, Steven Soderbergh's set is a really unusual place. There isn't a video village with a lot of monitors. Huh. And, uh, you know, you don't really know where to stand, which is great because it certainly discourages visitors from, from showing up. That makes sense. But, um, you know, Steven always let me stand next to him. He's his own cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, w- I learned a lot about, you know, how you know, look, the two most important things are what do you say to the actors and where do you put the camera? Yep. Um, and learning that from him was, you know, was the film school that I never went to. <laughs> Did having it be on such a tight uh, shooting day schedule uh, really push you and make you even more focused on getting it right? Did it add stress to you? Like, did it make you go insane? Did you sleep? Uh, like, what was the situation like? Not a lot of sleeping. Okay. Um, uh you know, what it makes you do is you realize that you have no margin for error mm-hmm. and, you know, that there is no reverse on, on right. that car. And so if you go out thinking that you have 40 days, um, every day is a huge bummer. Yeah. If you go out with a plan that takes into account your budget and you create an aesthetic that you think will work. And I had a really great cinematographer, mm-hmm. um, Eigel Brild, who I spent time with in prep saying, let's create an aesthetic. Let's go look at movies like the parallax view. Yeah. And you know, three days of the condor, mm-hmm. all the, the presence, men, yep, obviously, yep. Yeah. and figure out an aesthetic that, you know, that takes advantage of, of the legacy of those movies and that cinematic grammar and start there um, that, you know, that allowed us to move really quickly. And then there were other decisions that, you know, I had a lot of help with. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Annette Benning could have asked for full prosthetics. All and, right to play Diane. And yeah, we would yeah. have, you know, spent half the day with her in makeup. Right. Um, but, you know, fortunately, Annette and I came to an understanding where I said, you know, you got to do just enough so that people read you as Senator Feinstein. She did. Yeah. But not so much that, you know, we lose half a day with you in the chair. Yeah. Um, and in a way that ended up working out even better because she's such an amazing actress mm-hmm. and she has so many gifts, um, primarily her, her voice, yeah. um, which is just an incredible instrument. Um, that sometimes, you know, having those really compressed schedules forces you to make decisions that actually work in your, your benefit. Did you have conversations with Senator Feinstein about the fact that you were putting her in the film at all? No, you know, I reached out to her office, obviously, yeah. when I when I got in touch with Dan. So um, I spoke to her chief of staff and I said, if the senator would like to speak to me, um, I'm here. Right. Uh and, you know, would welcome that. And she said, you know, the senator, and there's a line in the movie about mm. this, the senator doesn't feel like, you know, the way to do the business of government is through films. She believes that it's her job to do it through the tools of the Senate. Yeah. Um, and I respect that decision. And, you know, I do know that she has reached out to Annette Oh, um, well, that's who great. she kind of knows, mm-hmm. um, you know, Annette went to school in San Francisco and was actually there when, when Senator Feinstein was the mayor. Oh, wow. So they've crossed paths and, you know, and Senator Feinstein, I think said, you know, maybe we could get together out and have lunch, but I don't, I know that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and I also know that, you know, that did not come with a, a promise of watching the film. Right. I think I think Annette does an incredible job yeah. bringing her to life because you're right. She does just enough to get you into the vibe of dying. The hairstyle works. The glasses, of course, work. But also the pauses in the listening, yeah. which is something that if you watch Senator Feinstein in any kind of conversation, she has. She takes just a moment to process what she's going to say before she says. She's very measured, and I think uh, Annette catches that captures that really well. And then by the and there's no big explosion moment for her, right? Yeah. Which which might have been tempting. To give her some big dramatic moment, but it's not something that it's in, in her nature necessarily. Yeah, one of the things that I think adds some tension to the film is, you know, the the central relationship in the movie is between Dan, her staffer, yes. and Annette. 
and that they there is you know a very well established decorum of you know how a staffer deals with with their boss right. with the senator and and what's interesting and it goes all the way back to you know english kind of you know dramas and mm-hmm. and you know thomas hardy novels where because there's this decorum and there's this restraint yeah. all of the emotion has to sort of bubble beneath the surface because you're not in a system that allows someone to punch a wall or scream right and and that was really fun for the actors to to stay within those lines you know yeah. adam doesn't just get to walk it and go you know what are you doing yeah um so you know uh, I think I think that was really ended up helping us. His passion does grow as the film goes along, yeah. but it feels earned rather than just a blow up. And I, I found that to be essential. And you're right. The the oh, well, it's your film. Of course, you're right. But like this relationship between Daniel Jones and and Diane Feinstein are, are. Has Daniel seen the movie? Daniel has seen the movie. How did does he have notes for you, or did he did he like the way he was presented? You know, seems like a meticulous man. Yeah, he is. <laughs> you know, Daniel was. Involved at various points during oh, okay. the production, you know, okay. he he was a great resource on the script because I would call him and say, if I flip this line, you know, am I changing the meaning? Is right. this still capturing what you were going after? Um, you know, I would say there's a footnote here, you know, footnote 384, and it seems like it refers back to this moment on page 122 am i right um so he was wow. a he was a good sort of tour guide for the executive summary mm-hmm. but he was also helpful in you know talking to our production designer Ethan Tobman about you know what did the windowless room look like yeah you know what you know w- what was your experience of food in the windowless room are there pizza boxes piled in the corner right um you know things like that uh you know i think for for Daniel, like myself, you know, we'd never shown the movie to more than 10 or 12 people at mm-hmm. a time during post just to get notes. And we got into Sundance, which was great. Yeah. And they gave us, you know, a really prime spot on the first Saturday at Eccles, mm-hmm. which is a room that holds 1,200 people, I think. Yeah. And so walking out on the stage, um, you know, with this movie that almost nobody had seen um was terrifying <laughs> um and then it, daniel was there oh good and i brought him out on stage at the end and and everybody got up and gave him an incredible standing ovation oh. that went on and you know i remember sort of looking at annette and she was crying it was a really amazing moment oh that's great um would you Look at the torture scenes in the movie. You don't pull any punches here, and I found that to be a very bold decision because yeah. uh, it's graphic and with the, using this uh, terrible seer tactic. Were you determined to make sure that people watching the movie were forced to see the truth of this uh, and what happened? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked that question because yeah. it was probably the thing that we worked on the most during post. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was really fearful of doing anything that felt exploitative. Right. And I, you know, I certainly... You didn't want to do a Gibson version. I didn't. I just didn't <laughs> want to, you know, be accused of doing torture porn. Right. And I didn't want to lose the audience. Um, and I had a conversation, you know, during my research with a guy named Alberto Mora, who was the Navy's head lawyer during the program, and he oh, worked wow. in the Pentagon under Rumsfeld. And... Alberto Mora, when he learned about what the CIA was doing, stood up and said, you can't do this. This isn't who we are. This is against, you know, our code of conduct. Right. Um, and he has been one of the most outspoken, you know, uh, opponents of the EIT program. And again, I want to point out, this is not, you know, a liberal. Yeah. You know, this is someone who served under both Presidents Bush. Right. Um, he is a formidable, serious minded guy who who loves this country and wants it to be safe. And he asked me that same question. And this was when I was writing. And he said, mm-hmm. I, are you going to show the torture? And I said, I don't know. You know, it's really difficult for me to think about doing that. Um, and he said, well, I just want to tell you that if you don't, 
you're doing what the CIA did. You're perpetuating that sin. That's a great point. You're burying it. Yeah. And you can't do that. And and it really stuck with me. I mean, there were early drafts where there were none of those scenes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I decided was it's more about the torturers than the tortured. And so in all of those scenes, if you go, you know, I always tell people, if you go and watch it a second time, you'll notice that for every one shot of someone being tortured, there's usually two shots of of interrogators reacting. Yeah, yeah, and you have that a number of times as the film progresses, these interrogators being confronted with the complete idiocy of what they're doing and then not being able, not willing, being willing to relent on yeah. it. And then other people caught up in this situation now just fighting to cover their asses uh, and greenlighting all this stuff and then lying about it. And I think that's... For me, as a person of military intelligence, it's super, this film was frustrating on so many levels because of that, and I, it just it frustrates me to, to the fact that we're still doing that nowadays, and I wonder when that eventually will stop being the way we go about handling that. Yeah, uh, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen are the two gentlemen. Now, have, have you had any pushback from anybody involved in the film and how you portrayed them? Have they reached out to you? Did you get followed in a car park, anything like that? Um, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> okay. I'm hoping that it doesn't. And, and, <laughs> and if, it, if something bad does happen to me, um, please write about it. I will. You can give me a call if, um, if you're in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, the... The thing is, the pushback really happened when the report came out. You know, if you go back to that moment in time, right. the CIA sent out an army of talking heads um, right after the report was released yeah. saying, you know, we disagree, this isn't true, EITs did get bin Laden, um, and, you know, they doubled down on their position. Right. Um, and John Brennan made a statement that day again saying that, you know, that they disputed the findings of the report, which is stunning to me for two reasons. One, the report is made entirely out of their own communication. Right. So it's not like Dan, it's not Dan's interpretation. Right. It's their emails. Um, and, you know, if they have emails saying, oh, that last email was wrong this really did work. Right. Why haven't they shown us that? Like they've had every opportunity. And in fact, one of the things that's in the movie that was a major revelation to me and something the press sort of just skipped over is when Leon Panetta came in to the CIA as director. Yeah. He did what any good administrator would do. He would say, can we do our own investigation? I just want to know what our exposure is here. Right. Because he wasn't around when the program was being run. And so somehow or another, that investigation wound up on Dan's server. Right. Now, as the movie points out, we don't know if it was a whistleblower or a mistake. And that document was pulled back by the CIA, and they've never released it. Hmm. But Dan and a number of senators read it. Yeah. And it all says exactly the same thing. So how come the CIA's own investigation supports Dan's findings but now the CIA says that's not true. Yeah, why wouldn't Panetta push this forward? You know, and I think that's also essential for the movies that oh, the Obama administration doesn't come out of this looking good either, and it kind of just shake your people, what people's ideas of this incredible Camelot that was Obama. But in fact, he did. He made a lot of tough decisions, rough decisions that would be difficult to defend in retrospect. Yeah. But at the time. I'm sure they felt they were doing the right thing, uh, but as we saw in his second term, all of it was a waste of time in terms of trying to curry favor or be a postpartisan president because they were never going to be on board with his agenda no matter what it was out of principle. Yeah, well, you just, yeah, this is exactly, you know, what I've been saying to people. Look, you know, I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity to vote for Barack Obama twice, and I'm, you know, very very happy that I, I live at a time when our country took some incremental step against, you know, a very pervasive level of racism in our society. Yes. So that that is thrilling to me. But that doesn't mean that the guy is a god. Right. He is a human being and he he did some things that are extraordinary. Yeah. But he also did some things that were probably miscalculations. Mm-hmm. And again, like not holding anyone accountable for what happened with the banks 
and not holding anyone accountable here. Right. You know, people remember, a lot of people remember a speech that he made, which was, it appears that we tortured some folks. But they don't remember the next line, which basically said, but the people who did this are all patriots. Yeah. And I just, I have a hard time with that. Yeah. Because I, I think that when you speak to people like Ali Soufan, who I really do think are patriots, mm-hmm. and Ali Soufan is the person who was able to piece together that KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was the mastermind of 9-11. Right. Ali Soufan stayed within the letter of the law. Um, so he, to me, is a patriot. Yeah. It's, it's, this, it's the other people who give in to their more baser impulses and instincts because they're frustrated that they can't operate at the same level as Ali Soufan. That, so they just pursue that because that's yeah. what they know and then try to legitimize it or rationalize it uh, rather than uh, accept the fact that it's not the way to go and adjust as best they can. Yeah, and a lot of the people who I spoke to, you know, Senator Udall, um, mm-hmm. Senator Carl Levin, Senator Whitehouse – you know, they all told me something that I find very, very inspiring, which is, you know, we don't have laws for the really beautiful days yeah, when everything right. goes right. We have laws for the days when buildings, you know, get brought down yeah. and planes crash into them. Um, and we have those laws to remind us of what we were meant to be yeah. and what the basis of this country is. And to abandon them... Um, in pursuit of safety is, you know, as other people have said, is allowing the other side to win before the battle even starts. It's the confusing message, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, we see it in numerous films. Who are you when the chips are down? What yeah. do you really believe in? What are you really made of? And as a country, the same thing applies. If your principles don't apply in the toughest and the darkest of times, then you don't really have these principles. You know, if yeah. you can't come back to them and use them effectively, legally, to do uh, to to fight this war, then what do you do? And you cannot hide behind the excuse. I had people who died that day. Yeah, we all lose people in life. It does not mean that you can now violate yeah. these ethics and morals in pursuit of something that you believe is out there, but you don't really know the level. Yeah, and Colonel, you know, Colonel Steve Kleinman, who is mm-hmm. another military intelligence person, who you know people can read about online, was yeah. a guy who tried to stop this when he saw it in in the military um, at great personal cost, but he was mm. a lifelong military intelligence guy, an interrogator, never, you know, would have used these tactics. Right. Um, you know, what Colonel Kleinman said to me when I interviewed him is he said, you know, he told me a story. He goes, you know, my his brother is a firefighter, I think, up the coast in California, and... Mm. He said, you know, when there's a fire, civilians run away, and they should run away right? because it's terrifying. But there are professionals who go the other direction, and they walk into the fire, yeah. and they put it out. And that's what should have happened after 9-11. Right. It was okay for all of us to be scared, but what we needed were professionals to calmly walk in yeah. and deal with it without forgetting their professionalism right and you know that to me is a really inspiring message yeah yeah rather than seeing uh an administration that maybe gave into their uh, prejudices and biases and racism in yeah. uh, and follow that uh policy to do what they did this idea of a paper trail comes up a number of times in the film i don't know if we have to wrap up in a few minutes i just wanted to touch base on this um is this your kind of your way of saying something overall? Like this is something people need to be aware of paper trails and what can happen. And because uh, we seem to be seeing that again, like as I mentioned earlier in the Ukraine situation and Trump, this idea of emails, this idea of texts that are, that occur five hours later of, eh, we're not saying quid pro quo. Uh, you know, we're seeing that again. Were you, were you trying to highlight that, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to Watergate. Yeah. And, you know, more so than ever now, we leave electronic footprints. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, you know, that 
is important if we're going to start holding people accountable. You mm-hmm. know, in, in regards to the Ukraine thing, you know, there's a, a taxonomy of whistleblowers <laughs> that, I, that right. I now have in my head. Like <laughs> Dan Jones was doing his job. He wasn't a whistleblower. No, he wasn't, right. He was sent off to find the truth, and he did, mm-hmm. and he did it so well that the senators who he worked for had no choice but to act. Yeah. Um, there are other people, like we're seeing now with the Ukraine is, situation, who use the whistleblower law perfectly. Yeah. This person, whoever they are, did everything by the book, mm-hmm. and they need to be protected. Right. And we need to understand that doing an inquiry or an investigation isn't saying someone's guilty. And so when I look and I see Republicans saying they're not going to do this, yeah. that to me violates their oath of office because – you have to investigate. That's yeah. what you do when you have a whistleblower. Yeah. Otherwise, you're basically, you know, you don't, why do you have the law? Yeah. And so I think the anxiety that I'm seeing right now in the Republican Party over investigation is really anathema to what your duty is as an elected official. Someone yeah. has reported what they believe may be a crime. Yeah. Investigate it. If it's not a crime, then tell us that. Right. If yeah. it is, then, you know, again, hold someone accountable. Yeah. And pulling off childishly histrionic stunts like storming a committee room is not going to solve any problems at all. No. Uh, it's absolutely ju- juvenile. When I saw that, I was like, it's incredibly juvenile. Uh, and I, I just wonder at the end of the day where, what the end result of all this is going to be because it just keeps getting more and more uh, fantastical and surreal. Yeah. No, we are seeing the destruction of really important institutions. Mm. And, you know, that is so corrosive in society. And, you know, it's terrifying to me that, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're not able to rely on our institutions in the same way. And, you know, when you think about it going, it's terrifying Mm. to me that, you know, we're not being... I'll edit that. No it, it's yeah. terrifying to me that we're not able to rely on our institutions. And, you know, and it's, it's one thing, you know, it's already bad when, you know, we're so concerned about, you know, you know, an alleged deep state. Right. And that we're, you know, now we're criticizing our own intelligence community. Mm-hmm. And how ironic. Know, um, yeah. I mean, it's bananas to me. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we've even gone one step further, which is we're now in a place where, you know, we're calling the news fake. Yeah, and yeah. I think this country, you know, that's the thing that scares me the most is I've always had hope because there's a fourth estate and that there's, mm-hmm. you know, there are journalists to keep us honest and tell us what's really happening. And, you know, when you have a president who's, you know, calling the New York Times fake news, yeah. um, that that has a real, you know, the, the consequences of this time are, are going to be felt for, you know, certainly the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, I have two last questions for you here because we're almost at the hour mark. Um, is this your last go around behind the camera or do you find yourself, uh, did this movie kind of wake up an impulse in you to do it more? Well, I've wanted to direct for a really long time. Okay. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm itching to, to do it again. Mm-hmm. Do you want to expand out or is it more of the smaller stuff? Because it's kind of like a smaller approach to, the, to a larger problem, do you find? I'd like to sleep in between shoot days <laughs> in the future. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that something more than 28 days. But, you know, <laughs> if that's all they give me, then I'll figure it out. So Marvel, call him up. Give him some. <laughs> give him some extra time. I do have to ask this because I'm collided. I want to ask this. Did you? Were you tempted to ask Adam about any Star Wars stuff at all? Did you ever want to ask? Are you not that kind of? Uh, you don't care about Star Wars. I care deeply about Star Wars. <laughs> first of all, oh, um, perfect. I love that. You know, right. and I'm I'm good buddies with Oscar Isaac. Oh, I always ask him if I can go for a ride in his X-wing. <laughs> um, but uh, I no, you know, Adam. Adam is a real professional, yeah. and I think what Adam knows and w- what everybody finds out, you know, like I, I worked on a Bourne movie and mm-hmm. I worked on Ocean's 12 with Steven. Yeah. You know, people sort of have this this reductive view of what they call popcorn movies, mm-hmm. and 
A, I love popcorn. B, I love movies. And C, those movies are just as hard to make entertaining oh, yeah. as a movie like The Report. And so, you know, there, there are no easy stories. And mm. I really have a lot of respect for Adam because he shows up for work for, mm-hmm. you know, for JJ and Kathy Kennedy and those people the same way he did for me, which is he wants to do an amazing job. Yeah. And, you know, I think his work in that franchise shows that. Yeah. You, you mentioned something here. I, I wasn't going to ask, but you mentioned this. Um, what do you feel about all this stuff with Coppola and Scrooge? Do you think it's all just like kind of blown out of proportion? And you don't have to speak on it if you don't feel like it. I'm just asking. Look, I, I mean, my point of view is it's a mixed bag. You know, mm-hmm. I love that I'm getting some time in a theater with the report, and I'm grateful for Am- to Amazon for doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, they bought the movie yeah. at Sundance, and we made that a condition, but I think they would have done that anyway because I, I think that the communal experience of a movie is crucial to a healthy society and that, you know, it's important to go to museums and it's important to go to concerts Mm -hmm. and important to go to movies and sit in a room with the people who you share the streets and the restaurants and the schools with. And that the loss of that common experience is going to really have problems that, you know, we see all over our society. That being said, you know, I don't know that our movie would get played in a lot of places in the world um, if not for Amazon and the reach of Amazon Prime. Right. And so, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. I I think that it's a very different experience for watching a, a movie on your phone yeah. that Martin Scorsese makes and and what you might see in a theater. Yeah. And and so I I understand his point of view and I share it. I think the and nobody clearly knows the answer to this. Right. We you know it's gonna it's gonna force storytelling to evolve. Yeah, you yeah. know if nothing else, and this may seem like the most obvious of things, but when you see a face that's ten feet tall, you get to sort of have a microscope on human emotion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great thing that only happens in a movie theater. You know, that doesn't happen on, on, a, on even a really good iPhone screen. <laughs> and, right. and that has to at some point fall to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so what I worry about, again, and this goes back to the journalist thing, and it's why I love what you're doing in this question, yeah. is there was a generation of people who grow, grew up reading Pauline Kael yeah, and so that's how I started, and understanding movies, mm-hmm. and that's how I how I started, yep. and so I I knew that just the way that you know you want to learn about baseball if you really want to enjoy the World Series, right? Well, you know we need to educate people about about cinema so that they see the value in yeah. going out. Yeah. Last question: uh, What do you want people to take from your film after when they walk out there? And I will tell you the communal experience. Uh, there's levity in this movie, and people need to know that. There are serious subject matter, but there's levity. The f- people in the screening that I went to, there were reactions, communal reactions, both shock, both horror, and just uh, laughing because they have no other uh, reaction to it. So it is a communal experience movie, but what do you want people to take out of it when they w- get back in their cars or maybe when they're sitting thinking about it later on in the day? You know, the, the best reaction that I think I had showing the movie was early on I screened it, um, and Lorenzo de Bonaventura, mm-hmm. who produced Transformers and yep. G.I. Joe and very commercial fare, came up to me and I've known him for a while. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? You made a patriotic movie. Huh. And that's what I wanted. And when you get to the end of this movie, I hope that people feel that there is some hope that as long as there are people like Daniel Jones and the senators on that committee who will remind us what we are meant to be, that there's a lot that's worth fighting for. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, and I agree uh, with Lorenzo de Bonaventura. This is a patriotic film, and I defend his Transformers films all the time. I love them. Uh, But I will also defend this film because this is an incredible film that all of you listening to me, if you haven't watched it yet, go out to the theater and see this thing and see some incredible performances and get educated about your country and your world. 
and maybe come away with a little more knowledge. Uh, and you, some of you might even be inspired to step behind the camera yourself or to write a film like this. Certainly, that would be incredible. Um, thank you, Scott Z. Burns, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Uh, this has been uh, the latest episode of The Deep Cut. I'll finish it like I always finish it. Whatever you need to do to get through the next second, next minute, next hour, next day, next week, next month, next year, please find your way to do that. You never know what's waiting for you on the other side. It just might surprise you. Trust me. This has been The Deep Cut with John Roca. Napa know-how. This month, Napa's got all kinds of motor oil deals that can save you some serious cash. Like a five-quart jug of Napa full synthetic motor oil for just $16.49. With savings like that, you may start feeling like a VIP. But don't let it go to your head. These oil deals are for everyone. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends 831.20. Stay little chico pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive. Brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game. So that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.